A significant part of instrument training is learning about spatial disorientation and how only by trusting one's instruments can a pilot maintain control in IMC. But on one instrument flight, an erroneous alert in the cockpit, busting an ATC assigned altitude, the lack of real IMC experience, and spatial disorientation almost led to disaster for a family in a Beechcraft Bonanza. We'll hear all the details on this episode of ILAFT. I learned about flying from that. Hi, and welcome to episode 39 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder, and my guest today is Dr. Guy Cappuccino, who in a matter of only a few seconds nearly lost control of his A36 Bonanza, all because of a terrain alert that caused him to react in a way that put him and his family in great peril. Spatial disorientation and instrument training are the focus of this program. Dr. Cappuccino will share his harrowing experience right after this message from our sponsor, Avemco. The folks at Avemco Insurance are passionate about pilot safety. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program, publish dozens of articles on safety techniques and human factors by noted CFIs, and even support I Learned About Flying from that. Visit avemco.com flying or talk to them at 800-338-8705. Tell them you're an I Learned About Flying from that listener and they'll even save you an additional 5% off your premium. Now, I learned about flying from that. Dr. Guy Cappuccino is with me, and what an amazing tale you had that takes you back into the days of your training and lack of important stuff in training that put you in a position that scared you a little bit. Uh, Guy Cappuccino, welcome to I Laughed. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, that's right. That's great to be here today. You, as a physician and a bonanza owner, let's just start right off and get the elephant in the room out yeah. of the way because a lot of yeah. people say the bonanza is the doctor killer. But tell me about why you chose a bonanza and what your response to that whole doctor killer thing is. Yeah, that's right. Of all the airplanes you could own, right? I fall in love with a bonanza. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll just take you back a little bit. I uh, started flying. Well, after I was a doctor, I was in practice a few years, but, you know, flying had always been something that I was passionate about and, and wanted to pursue. And when the opportunities presented themselves, I started to fly. And like most people, I started in a 172 and then a diamond. And then we were in a, a club archer for a little while, my, my wife and two children at that time. And that was the plane that I got my instrument rating in. And we flew everywhere uh, for a few years until we expected our third. And then, of course, with only four seats in that plane, we had to look for something larger. And at the time, I 
was looking for anything that worked out. I was actually hoping for a Cherokee 6, having come out of a Piper platform. I knew how stable it was and, uh, you know, it had a great reputation for docility. Uh, but right up the road at the nearby airport here in Maryland, there was a gentleman who was shelling his half share of a beautiful 1973 A36 Bonanza with a brand new IO550 and nicely equipped panel and most importantly, six seats. And so... Uh, the rest is history with that airplane. I, I'm still a partner in that plane um, 13 years later. Let me ask how many hours you put on the airplane every year. Is it something that you're flying every week and, and busy all the time in it? Uh, yeah. So uh, the personally, um, without my partner, I probably fly... Well, each year I fly about 175 hours. Um, and over the years, the majority of that time has been in that A36 platform. Uh, but, you know, with training and other things I fly, it kind of gets diluted a little bit. But uh, coming up on about 1,000 hours of seat time in that particular airframe. So you know every rattle. You know every hum. You know anything that that doesn't feel right. It's, it is, you, you wear that airplane, don't you? I sure do. In fact, we just had the prop dynamically balanced last summer. Um, and, and that's absolutely correct. It's uh, almost cliched, but you do. We wear it and I, I feel like I have almost a personal relationship with it. It's, uh, it's something I'm sure that some other airplane owners can attest to. I'm not sure I'm proud of it, but I, I kind of love that airplane. It's obviously not a doctor killer for you, but why do you think the Bonanza got that negative nickname? I think I think where there's smoke, there's fire, Rob. And uh, so for those that don't know me, I'm a plastic surgeon and uh, surgeons have a reputation for being confident. There's an old cliche in surgery that says not always right, but never in doubt. And <laughs> of course, there, of course, there's some humor, but there's some truth there. Uh, I think I think it speaks to the nature of doctors and surgeons specifically that we are very, you know, high achieving, highly focused people who have to have a huge amount of self-confidence confidence in what we do to do what we do effectively and to be safe in it. And that's the same in aviation. The, the problem where I think a lot of doctors over the years have come to peril um, is that one can make that assumption easily that those skills translate immediately over to a different field of expertise like aviation, which while there are many similarities, unfortunately is not true, as we all know. Uh, there are different skills and there are perishable skills. Um, and I think that's where this tale of you know, training and personal minimums comes in. Um, and it's just ironic that I happen to fall in love with this Bonanza. And, uh, and she and I uh, did almost come to peril, but of course we didn't. Well, let's talk about that. Let's, if we're going back 10 years, 2012 or 2013, you That's had right. just completed your instrument rating in that Archer, but you now have your small uh, children and you've got the A36. Set us up for the story about what happened to you on that day that almost led quite frankly, to disaster. Yes, I surely will. Uh, so I did get my instrument rating in the Archer at about uh, 250 hours total time. So I wasn't a total novice. And I was aware that a lot of times people get to that 300 hour mark of complacency. So I was extra careful. I got some excellent transition training into the Bonanza. Um, and I had at least 50 hours, probably more like 75 or 80 at this point of the flight. So I was pretty comfortable in the aircraft. And a lot of that time was just adjustment to a high performance, fast, complex, retractable aircraft. Um, and I really didn't do a lot of instruments uh, actual time in it. In fact, very little, but mostly simulated. 
Gotcha. So that's an important thing to know at this point, because later on we'll discuss how how deep that particular uh, hole was in, in the training, but not a lot of real instrument time in the airplane. No, and that's kind of what's frustrating too, because up to that point, I had done significant training. So I made sure that I was facile with the avionics, with the autopilot, had a couple of different types of approaches, but it was all simulated. And, uh, you know, I was always able to fly those simulations perfectly. I, I felt very confident and comfortable uh, in simulated instrument conditions in that airframe. I knew all the parameters and power settings. So I was pretty comfortable in it. And so uh, the, the day of this incident, we had flown up to visit some family in North New Jersey. We went to a little airfield, a little uncontrolled strip uh, called Lincoln Park. Some are familiar with it. It sits under the Bravo of New York and just outside the class delta of uh, Essex County and Morristown. And that's so November 07. It's right near KCDW, Essex County, New Jersey. Short. I think it's a 2,700-foot strip, but it has almost a 700-foot displaced threshold uh, landing to the north, which is what we were doing that day. And I'd been out of there in and out several times. I'm familiar with the topography. I'm familiar with talking uh, to New York approach. So none of this was unfamiliar. What was different that day was the overcast. And uh, I, I knew that it was going to be there. I had looked and at the planned time of departure, it was about a thousand overcast. And I thought to myself that that was a reasonable uh, minimum for me at that point in my training. And so I um, did everything I was supposed to do. I got my clearance on the ground. I had everything programmed into the GPS. I had my instructions, which were pretty typical instructions, climb runway heading, climb to 3000 feet and contact approach, no problem. I'm familiar with the topography in that area. There is some elevation to the north, which is the way I was departing. However, uh, there's nothing really above 1,800 or 2,000 feet. And so, you know, we should be fine at that point. So I took off. I stayed on instruments very quickly, as I always do before transition into IMC. I got into IMC. I'm hand flying. Everything is going perfectly fine. And when I get to 3,000 feet, I got an alert on one of my instruments. I, I'm still not sure where it was generated from, but it blared out terrain, terrain, terrain. This is a voice alert. And honestly, at the time, I didn't even know how to silence it. I, I, of course, I do now. And so in this moment now, I'm in IMC. We're completely in the soup. You know, my wife is completely unfamiliar with this. So she's on edge. Um, and now I have to make a split second decision, right? Do I trust this voice yelling at me? I know there's terrain in front. Did I make a mistake somehow? Is my altimeter off? Um, or, and do I bust my altitude assignment? And so I made the decision, um, which I still think is reasonable at the time, uh, to climb. So I kept full power and I blew right through 3000. And before I could even key the mic to talk to New York, they came on and, and said, you know, 2895 whiskey, you know, you know, you know, over your altitude, get back down to 3000. And I said, I have an altitude alert. And they said, we have your radar contacted, get back down to 3000 immediately. And did they ever uh, tell so, you why that happened, guy? I'm assuming it had to do with traffic around that area because you're so close to Philadelphia and every place else. Right. Um, they never they never said. But again, being being a neophyte, I, you know, immediately complied. And this is where the trouble started. So I'm full power. I'm in a climb. I immediately pushed the nose over and I assume I pulled power back at that point, but I pushed the nose over to stop the climb and start going back down. And I couldn't have been more than five or 600 feet at this point above the altitude. 
And as I pushed the nose down to go forward, I had the distinct sense that I wasn't and that in fact I was still climbing. And I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but I was experiencing spatial disorientation and specifically the inversion illusion, which I'm now very well studied on. So as I continued to push forward, the sensation of tumbling backwards or climbing worsened. And before I know it, I had put the plane in a very, very steep dive. Before we go any further, let's talk about that term inversion illusion. That's a relatively new term for me, but tell us about that. It is a newer term. Yeah, even when I got my primary, I didn't learn about it. They talk about um, somatographic illusions and vestibular illusions. And essentially what there's just a disconnect with our vestibular system, which are our inner ear organs, which sense motion in three different planes, right? X, Y, and Z for us. And the problem comes in when our visual input to the visual cortex of our brain doesn't align with what our inner ear is feeling. And so the problem is that as I pushed forward, I had this sensation of linear acceleration. There's G-forces pushing me back, but my brain isn't computing with that. And so it feels like as if you rotated yourself back or reclined in a chair, there feels like there's positive G-forces and that you're being pushed back into your chair, right? So you feel like you're pointing up. Your brain is saying, I must be pointing up. I must be nose up. When in fact, you're pushing forward and you're accelerating toward the ground and getting pushed into your seat backwards, but you're facing the ground. And but you, unless you trust your instruments, your brain is saying, you're going up, you know, you better keep pushing forward. And you had a glass panel at that point in the airplane. Uh, no, not at the time. Uh, we didn't. That came later. We, we had a, a, just a HSI and um, a standard attitude indicator. Um, and, and so... That's, that's the inversion illusion. And I, I learned a lot about it later. I knew I was in deep trouble, but I didn't understand or anticipate that at the time. Then what happened after that? How long did it take you to get your wits about you to say, okay, I'm in a dive. I've got to get off the power and pull back, level this thing off and get it to 3000. How long did that take? You know, it felt like a much longer period of time than it actually was. It was probably only a matter of five seconds, I would say, looking back on it. Um, but it all happened rather quickly. So as I'm becoming disoriented and I'm continuing to push forward, uh, you know, I realized I'm sure I was looking at the instruments. And the one thing I remember seeing, which is will always get your attention quickly, is when your altimeter starts to unwind quickly and you're only at 3000 or 3500 feet. And I see this quickly unwinding counterclockwise. And so that was the moment when I said, I'm in I'm in deep trouble. And, you know, not not to get dramatic or emotional with it, um, but the thought blew through my mind. I said, dear God, I could kill my whole family here. Thankfully, I had the presence of mind and the training to immediately pull the power back and to level off. I just pulled up. I looked at the attitude indicator. I knew I was nose low. I pulled back, not too quickly. And as I came up to level and I saw the altimeter start to level off, I snapped the autopilot on, heading in altitude. And within a matter of a second or two, I felt completely at ease and, and under control again. Those vestibular illusions had abated and everything was back under control. You didn't uh, have to trust your feelings, Luke. You did trust the instruments and the autopilot took over. Were you at any time anywhere near the ground when you got that alert? Have you gone back and checked the, uh, the topography from the point of takeoff to the time that Betty started yelling at you? 
Yeah, I know we weren't. We were never close to any terrain and we could never quite figure out what made that announcement. I suspect there were some radio towers that I was getting close to north of the airport and the sensitivities on whatever instrument was yelling at me, uh, you know, cued it off. Um, but no, I was never in any danger. I did go back. I looked at the track. I traced it over four flight. I was never near any, any terrain. The voice alert almost got you in trouble. Yes. If it had not spoken to you, you probably would have leveled at 3,000 and been fat, dumb, and happy and, well, and safe. Yeah, everything would have been totally normal. Um, you know, and it's, it's just a perfect example of, um, you know, the chain of events that leads to a disaster. When you do that root cause analysis, it's never one thing. It's that last thing that you just couldn't handle. Right. Uh, this right. chain of small events, none of which on its own could cause you any difficulty at all, but put them all together, and then you get Correct. the straw that breaks the camel's back. Did the FAA ever say anything else to you after that once you got it level at three? Did you have time to explain? Because usually New York Approach doesn't want to have a lot of discussion. They just want to tell you what to do. You do it, you follow instruction, then they're happy, and all works well. What was the outcome of all of that? Did they talk to you again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they asked what was going on. Uh, you know, I was honest. I said, I, I having some trouble with my instrumentation and I momentarily lost control, but uh, everything is okay now. And I'll get back to 3000. And they gave me a heading, they gave me a vector. And that was the last I heard of it. How long a flight did you have from that point to get back to Maryland? And how long did it take for you and your wife and even your kids? They may not have known what was going on, but your wife certainly did. How did you recover during that period of time going back to Maryland? Right. So, you know, once, once we were out of that situation, uh, I felt fine. I, I thought we could complete the flight and it would be fine. Um, we were in solid IMC all the way back. It was a one hour flight home. And to be honest, my, my main goal at that point was just to reassure my wife and make sure that she knew it was fine and that, you know, this is what had happened. And, you know, I trusted my instruments and we're going to be fine because I knew we'd be okay. Um, but I just, I knew I probably terrified her. The children were too young to really remember. They, uh, I don't remember them being particularly upset. They probably thought it was you know, part, part of the ride. That would have been an exciting ride at any amusement park. Let me ask, when you got your upgrade in the panel, tell me what you chose and why you chose it and if your experience there coming out of November uh, 07 was a part of the decision-making process for how you upgraded the panel. We actually had um, a vacuum failure in... in uh visual conditions one day and the gyro tumbled. So that was fun to see. I took a video of that. Wow. And at that point, wasn't too much too long after that, actually. Uh, and we we did some just deliberations and chose an Aspen unit, which was fairly new at the time. Uh, just so intuitive. It had a tight, tight scan. It's a smaller screen. It allowed us to keep all the old vacuum instruments as backup and to cross check. So if we had a partial panel situation that we would, we would have multiple instruments to rely upon. Uh, and that was just such an intuitive instrument we felt and we still have it in the plane today. I, I, I can't speak highly enough about it. Everything you need is right there. However, uh, as an instructor myself, I, I do recommend that people learn on the traditional six pack. It is a little more difficult to integrate that information and get that situational awareness. It's much easier to transition at that point to a smaller, more condensed 
panel that gives you that information in a very organized, logical fashion. But I think there's merit to learning the traditional. And then you can always go, of course, and fly any aircraft to get into. This is a great time to stop for a message. We'll come back and talk about the lessons you learned because you're talking right into where we want to go with this. We'll be right back with Guy Cappuccino right after this message. Since 1961, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker, empowered to improve coverage based on your unique situation. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 for a quote and save an instant 5% for being an I learned about flying from that listener. Save even more for most recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in fast team wings. Just ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can qualify and how much you'll save. Now, back to ILAFT. We're back with Dr. Guy Cappuccino, who on a flight out of November 07, Lincoln Park back to Maryland, got himself in a, in a situation where potential panic set in when the voice alert started telling him that there was an obstruction nearby and he busted an altitude. But you got back, New York wanted to know what was going on. You landed the airplane, you're safe. And I'm sure in those years since you made that flight that you have played it over in your mind many, many times and determined there were some things that you probably learned about flying from that. Share some of those. Yeah, there certainly were. And I, that, that experience has never left me. And I hope it's made me a better and safer pilot since then. Not only a better pilot, but you also became an instructor, a CFI, a double I, and a multi-engine instructor. Thank you for that kind of dedication. I, I've, I've always been passionate about it, and, and that experience was, was a big part of propelling me uh, to just to prove to myself and my family and everyone that flies with me that I'm you know, the safest and most confident pilot that I possibly can be. Um, so yeah, the, the, the most important takeaway that day, Rob, that I learned um, is that simulated instrument conditions really don't do a great job of showing us what real instrument conditions are. I mean, they're, obviously they're essential for proficiency in education, but up to that point, I looked back in my logbook and I had logged 0.2 hours of actual instrument meteorological time before I took that flight, which of course, at the time, I didn't think much of, but in retrospect, I realized it was very, very different. Um, and and if, I could, if I could encourage anybody who's studying instruments training right now to make sure you get actual experience or the first time you go up, take somebody with you, take a more experienced pilot or an instructor with you, because uh, at least in my experience, uh, that hood does not prepare you for what it's like to be completely encased in clouds. I had a situation when I was in my instrument training with my instructor where we were flying into Lunkin Airport for what was then the uh, 2-0 left ILS. Now it's 2-1 uh, left ILS at Lunkin. But we were coming over what was a mall and right by uh, uh, the Madeira non-directional beacon, which is gone now. But what we saw that surprised us both was that there was a hole in the clouds from the ground and the lights came up at an angle. And we had totally expected to see them go straight up. 
And when we both saw them, the, the light coming at it about a 30 degree off vertical angle, we both out loud went, whoa. And it was one of those things that we really had to make sure we were on the instruments because we, it was that split second of spatial disorientation that certainly got our attention. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the same thing. You have to just have experience to trust those instruments. Um, and unfortunately, experience can be a, a ruthless educator. Uh, so it, it has to be done judiciously and, and, you know, in small incremental steps. So you learned about flying from that with your students when you were taking them up in whatever airplane they're train you're training them in. Uh, you actually get them out in the clouds so they don't have to wear a hood or don't have to wear foggles, that they have full vision of nothing outside and the whole panel inside. Do they thank you for that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I have a friend who I often will go up with just to say instrument proficient, um, and he's excellent under the hood. Um, and we, I took him up recently and we went, so let's just do some actual. And, and frankly, I, I feel more secure oftentimes because you know there isn't VFR traffic and IFR traffic commingling. You just have to follow the instrument, listen to air traffic, and it's really a nice feeling of safety. Um, and he commented the same thing. He said, wow, this is really different because he doesn't fly a lot. He just likes to stay proficient. Uh, and I said, yeah, it is really different. And once you get over that initial sensation and you're like, you know what, it's okay. I'm just going to look at these instruments and trust them. You, you do get a sense of security, but it's not the same as seeing that light peer in from the sides of the hood and just kind of seeing the periphery of the ground. It's different. Being an actual IMC, well, there's there's no substitute for it. And working with air traffic control in the air traffic control system is another extremely important skill. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that was told to me and I share with my students, and I think is just great advice, um, as people are working through their ratings after they get their initial and they're working toward their instrument rating, I recommend that everybody flight follows on every flight they can. Of course, there's a measure of safety there. You know, you do have radar contact and there is at least traffic alerting, if not separation. Right. But it really gives you a comfort level with talking on the radio and changing waypoints and coordinates. And people, you know, non-pilots, we've all had this experience as we're talking on the radio with air traffic and they say, how can you understand what they're saying? I don't understand a word they're saying. And you're all speaking so quickly. And when I think about it, it's because I'm anticipating what they're going to say. There's a finite number of words or commands, and there's that expectation. It's all part of what we talk about staying ahead of the airplane. And so if you get that communication portion down in a VFR condition, when you actually transition into instrument conditions, you have such a level of confidence and it's one thing you don't have to deviate all that mental energy towards. And so you don't become task saturated as easily. Another great lesson. Anything else you learned about flying from that? I, I think the the other thing, and I know, Rob, we've, we've all beat this to death when we talk about personal minimums and, and how to set them. But what I learned, and this is a life lesson in medicine and surgery and flying, is that there are things that we don't know that we don't know. And so <laughs> those are the ones that will get you. And so I think the best thing to do as we advance in our aviation experiences to just do one small increment at a time, you know, maybe don't go into, you know, lower IMC in unfamiliar airspace with surrounding terrain, 
uh, you know, with convection, you know, just maybe one at a time. And if you're going to take off a chunk, well, then have somebody with you. And one of the lessons, again, that correlates with medicine is if that voice in the back of your head says, you know, I, I wonder if I should or I shouldn't, that little bit of doubt you should always take that seriously. To this day, you know, when I'm closing in on 1500 hours and, and a lot of different experience, I, you know, I fly at 421, I get up into the flight levels. But to this day, before taking a flight with challenging weather or terrain, I will take my flight plan. I will share it with two or three other experienced pilots and say, hey, what do you think? And 99% of the time, they'll come back and say, yeah, guy, of course, you got this. This is fine. Um, but, but if there's any doubt, I really want somebody with more experience than me to say, yeah, that's okay. Oh, boy. That's a great one. For me, when I was in Civil Air Patrol, I had a couple of guys who were instructors. The, the, the three of us made up an air crew. And uh, the, the rule was, first chicken wins. And when that's I'm flying right. with my wife, we say the first thing, if she's uncomfortable with something, that's enough for us to do something else, to stay away from and avoid or be on the safe side of any situation. Yeah, that's that's the same thing we did. And in fact, my wife, you know, we've flown together so often um, and we talk about safety all the time. And I said, the, the only thing we can do to become more safe at this point of course, except scrub missions, is to be a two-pilot crew. And so I'm very, very proud of her. She went on and got her private certificate a few years ago wow. so that we would have two qualified pilots, um, even if it was just so she'll do radios and navigation for me. But, you know, in the event of a medical emergency or incapacitation, that there would always be a second person there that could land the plane. So we're always thinking safety minded. And there'll be times when she'll say, look, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this weather. And again, that's that voice in your head, like you said, with the chicken and we say, okay, let's let's reevaluate and stay safe. Boy, those are great lessons. Guy Cappuccino, thank you so much for being on iLaft. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rob. Dr. Guy Cappuccino's commitment to real-world instrument training is an example of the dedication of so many in general aviation who willingly give back to make flying safer, more reliable, and so rewarding. Fun, too. I hope that you're benefiting from these episodes, and if you've got a story that you think would be valuable to share, send it to me. My email address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. If you haven't yet subscribed to iLaft, I hope you will. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes every couple of weeks so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of iLaft. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.